Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. My name is John Finicos. I'm a pharmacist, and I serve as the chief of pharmacy at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. I will be your host today. With me today is Dr. George Davis. Dr. Davis is the Antithrombosis Stewardship Program Coordinator at the University of Kentucky Healthcare System. George has been a clinical pharmacist at UK Healthcare for over 25 years. I would describe him as a practitioner, a teacher, a researcher, and he's always been focused on anticoagulation for the prevention and treatment of thrombosis during his career. So I'm going to tell you we have a wise owl. I won't say old, George, because I fit the category of old, but I'll just say you're a wise owl in the world of, of pharmacy. And then finally, if that isn't enough, George has been the co-lead of the multidisciplinary pulmonary embolism response team, PERT, both at UK Healthcare, but also at the national level as part of the PERT consortium. And if you haven't had a chance I would hope that you get a, an opportunity to look up this organization and hopefully we'll talk a little bit about it. But George has served as a member of the PERT Consortium Board of Directors and he's served on a number of their committees. So, George, welcome. Thank you, John. Good afternoon. This is a very exciting time as a pharmacist to be uh, in this uh, current environment of VTE and VTE prophylaxis. Well, we're going to talk, George. Today's episode is sponsored by the Janssen, a Janssen pharmaceutical company. This podcast series examines the prevention of venous thromboembolism, or VTE, in hospitalized acutely ill medical patients who are at risk for thromboembolic complications. This podcast is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit, but there will be additional podcasts on this topic and they will be made available. So our topic today is VT prophylaxis in the medically ill patients, extending the conversation. And again, George, thanks for joining us. Let's get, let's have at it. Let's get started and talk a little bit about VT prevention in the medically ill. George, let me start. Tell us a little bit about your practice setting and your background and, and what you do on a routine day. Okay. Sure. As you mentioned before, I'm at the University of Kentucky, and uh, about seven years ago, uh, is actually led by our hospital leadership and some of our physician uh, leadership to develop a antithrombosis stewardship program. And at that time, I had a strong interest in working with internal medicine folks and being involved in some anticoagulation research. Sort of got tabbed to sort of lead this stewardship program. And over the last seven years, we've developed a subcommittee to our PNT focused on antithrombotics. We developed a PharmD physician-based uh, consult service to help out with uh, the complex patient. 
that maybe uh, that needs a benefit risk assessment on continuation or choice of antithrombotic therapy. And uh, then as we've sort of evolved that into our current day and the complexity of the patients that we may see at University of Kentucky with many comorbidities, it's uh, so on a daily basis, it's a mix of those things. And of course, as we know, there's a lot of quality assurance and safety issues that come with the use of antithrombotics. So I'm very involved in uh, a lot of com internal committee work associated with that. And as you mentioned too, uh, sort of the pharmacist lead on our PE response team at the University of Kentucky, which has allowed me to get involved a little bit with the national work that's been done in that effort. And so on a daily basis, it's really a combination. Every day is a little different. A lot of education, colleagues in pharmacy, physician, nursing. I'm involved with that quite a bit. Plus, we have a, a large residency program, and all of this has seemed to come together in this topic area. So at Georgia, it never ends, right? Correct. So let me uh, ask the, the, I think what is probably burning amongst our, our audience in terms of questions. Can you tell us a little bit about what evolved with COVID infections at UK and the relationship, if you will, between thrombosis and the need for possibly anticoagulation? Yes, I think, you know, when we think of the effect of COVID on uh, the risk of thrombosis, I think we have to set the baseline of what we've learned over the last few years Patients hospitalized with a, acute illness, we know have an elevated risk, not only while hospitalized, but even post-hospitalization. And then as we've learned with uh, COVID, you know, a highly infectious disease, severe pneumonia, acute respiratory distress syndrome, along with a pro-thrombotic state, especially in hospitalized and critically ill patients, and some of the common clinical manifestations include venous thromboembolism, including DVT and pulmonary embolism. And in really reported at the beginning of the pandemic. And then the percent that we see is quite varied internationally. A recent meta-analysis uh, estimated around 17%, but there's a lot of variation depending on the study design and the method of ascertainment of how they determine DTE. And what we know is we can really look at Burkhoff's triad and look at COVID-19 and how it affects that. For example, viremia triggering endothelial dysfunction because the virus enters the endothelial cells and may impair its intrinsic antithrombotic therapy. The inflammatory response and the elevated levels of neutrophil extracellular traps, also referred to in that's and that leading to a hemostasis imbalance. And then also evidence of small and mid-size sort of in-situ thrombi. All of this collectively, you know, has really, from the start of the pandemic, been a real challenge with these patients in regard to uh, knowing what sort of how to manage these. So, George, I have to tell you, when this pandemic started and these numbers starting, started appearing, you know, with thrombosis rates approaching, you know, in some reports, 40 to 50 percent, I have to tell you, my, my gastric ulcers started to bleed. Can I ask, you know, 
We've got medically ill patients who are in our wards. We have medically ill patients that are in our ICUs. Can you tell us a little bit about preventative strategies that you employed in both of those populations? Absolutely. And first of all, I think some of the numbers you mentioned, even uh, there's been pretty high numbers even in patients that have received what we consider standard BT prophylaxis. So that's been real alarming as well throughout this um, pandemic. But the things that at least we've done at University of Kentucky, uh, I mentioned earlier that we have an antithrombosis stewardship subcommittee of PNT. We developed a COVID-19 subcommittee of PNT as part of, uh, as you can imagine, managing all the therapies. And we work very closely with that group but basically, we've had this as we meet monthly, and we have this as a standing agenda item. We discuss this monthly on far as the antithrombotic management within COVID-19, and that's been one of our strategies. And along with that is really trying to keep up with the, let's say, current interim guidelines, which there have been many published and described as interim, and as studies have come out, which there's been a plethora of ongoing clinical trials and a plethora of published reports that we've had to consider. But end of the day, our strategy from the start was to really go back to what we knew before this was acutely medically ill patients in the ICU, on the wards, are at high risk. And now we're throwing in another parameter that increases that risk. And so we really went back to, we know these patients warrant prophylaxis. And then early on when we were trying to limit, let's say nursing patient interaction, I went through every patient at UK and made sure we're appropriately using low molecular weight heparin instead of unfractionated heparin, just to reduce the daily number of injections and different things like that. And then Really, our strategy over the pandemic has really been reinforcing education to our providers, to our pharmacists that are part of our teams on a daily basis, and keeping up with the ongoing information and guidelines. And that's really been one of the essential things, I think, what we've done here, and to try to at least have a systematic strategy. And then that's not really getting into the comorbidities that we deal with, obesity, renal insufficiency that comes up, and then you have to further sort of think through what are our best options when we start considering the comorbidities. But it's been really a monthly review since the pandemic for our uh, group here. So, George, I have to ask, you know, you're a hero with the PERD consortium, but I know there's been guidelines on prophylaxis from the ACC. I know the, a, uh, the American Society of Hematology, ASH, has recommendations, CHEST, ISTH, the NIH, the World Health Organization, through these groups of patients. Is there any group that you rely heavily on? I, I know as part of PERT, one of the earliest organizations to provide webcasts on what was happening you know, across the pandemic, especially as it originated out of New York City, I thought was extremely helpful. But is there one guideline or one group that you count on or are we taking bits and pieces of each? Our approach here was actually what you said in the latter. 
was probably bits and pieces each and just tried to keep up with those guidelines and, and sort of review what data may have went into that, knowing some of the uh, limitations of the data. But I know we, we reviewed the ASH guidelines a couple times off and on because they did have an interim update as data came out. Um, but we also reviewed the chest physician guidelines, ISTH. I was actually had the fortunate opportunity to be involved with the uh, PERT consortium guidelines for PE, which as part of that, we talked about in addition to maybe what we thought might be reasonable treatment options was beyond that of just managing patients that may have COVID and transferring them and all of these other issues that came along with uh, some of this, as I mentioned before, the use of low molecular heparin over unfractionated heparin to minimize uh, nursing patient interaction. So that's been our strategy. And uh, also the interim analysis of the recent trials, which, you know, in the critical ill may have showed a signal for increased risk of bleeding as we started looking at the data where there was uh, escalation of intensity of anticoagulation versus maybe ward patients where there may be some benefits. So, and that's in the setting where there's, again, a plethora of ongoing trials looking at a variety of antithrombotic regimens, not only anticoagulants, but also antiplatelets and fibrinolytic agents. And so really just trying to keep a handle on that. And of course, the guidelines have helped sort of us focus, but I think many times we've had to sort of see what's going on with our own patients to make some of those decisions and uh, at least have a systematic approach to it. George, let me ask, I, I know you'll cringe, perhaps, perhaps not, but early on in the pandemic, we worried about the supply of, of drugs. And so we made all of the anticoagulants ranging from heparin, low molecular weight heparin, including the direct oral anticoagulants available for prophylaxis. Is there a role for DOAX in medically ill patients? And so let's start with that, um, and then we'll go further. Uh, yes, the, the short answer, um, and maybe let me repeat that. Yes, I think there is a role for the direct oral anticoagulants. Of course, the data in COVID-19 patients may be very limited, but I think um, extrapolating what we know in the studies that's been done for acute medically ill and even beyond hospitalization, I think there's good data there. And we, we have had the opportunity to lean on that a little bit in, during the pandemic. And because we've dealt with in the past, for example, patient refusals of getting injections. And so it's good that we have an oral option at times. And then we have a, a subset of patients that may go to rehab and we may wanna continue PT prophylaxis in that setting. And the direct oral anticoagulants have allowed some options there that and I think it really comes back to the data we have in acute medically ill patients that has, over the last few years, have given us more confidence about their role if we extrapolated that to a, that type of population. So I, I know we've been successful in extending prophylaxis in orthopedics. We've had here a focus on abdominal surgical patients and extending prophylaxis to prevent uh, VT complications after discharge. 
I think, you know, we've had, you know, we had the Magellan trial with success. We had ADOPT. We enrolled patients in ADOPT here. Uh, not so successful in a medically ill population of patients. We had the APEX trial with Patrixaban, which is no longer available. And then we had the Mariner trial. So we're basically left, you know, to River Roxaban really as our choice. So, George, you want to chat a little bit about, I mean, is there a selection process if we're going to use a drug like River Roxaban? Is there a risk scoring tool or just do we just take a look at the patient and say, boy, this one looks sick enough where men has enough risk factors with, you know, an oral agent may be appropriate? I think the answer to that at this time, if we focus in on COVID-19, is it's probably a compilation of all of those. And I think it does come down to individual patient assessment. And there are some risk assessment models I think we can use, but there's not really that I know that's been validated specific in COVID-19. I even saw a recent publication of the... uh, the Caprini score, for example, had been looked at and uh, actually modified to try to look at COVID-19 patients with uh, sort of adding the D-dimer, which I know has been controversial from the start, include that in as a potential another parameter to try to place these patients in what we would consider the highest risk group, where there may be where the benefit of extending their VT prophylaxis during a prolonged hospitalization or even outpatient may actually outweigh, the benefit may outweigh the risk of bleeding, which we have to also consider in these patients as well. Yeah, I think uh, we, Monica Famey, one of my students now, a resident in uh, Yale New Haven, did some work looking at uh, the APEX trial and identifying patients that developed venous thromboembolism after they left us, about 125 patients, and looked at trying to apply the enrollment criteria for the clinical trials. And it it becomes very difficult. It's time-consuming in that only about 25% of the patients actually fit the criteria that left and came back with DVT that probably should have received prophylaxis but if you look at the package insert of rivaroxaban, 100% of patients would have qualified for extended prophylaxis outside the hospital. And so I think that's the challenge for us is, you know, trying to translate the clinical trial data into real world situations where we can pick patients and selectively apply agents like rivaroxaban to add value and not cause further complications. And I actually think that's our wheelhouse as pharmacists. George, can I ask you to talk a little bit about PERT? I mean, clearly you've uh, led the nation as the pharmacist on that group. And can you tell us a little bit about what that organization has done, their focus, and you know what may be in store or helpful for pharmacists in the audience? Absolutely. So as you mentioned before, PERT, it uh, stands for Pulmonary Embolism Response Team. And this was an initiative that uh, started about five to seven years ago, where a group of, let's say, physicians and providers specializing in the area of PE realized as patients came into their health systems and 
we saw a quite diversity and variation in their care, depending on maybe who saw them first, who admitted them. And they recognized, and part of that was because of the limits of the data available to really drive a standard of care. So the idea of the multidisciplinary PERT came together to get the multi-specialties that may be able to offer advanced therapies and decide at the time of decision-making which therapy may be best for that individual patient and what that health system could offer at that time. And at the University of Kentucky, we introduced our PERT about six years ago. And fortunately, a pharmacist was involved in that from the start. And part of that was we have pharmacists that provide 24-7, 365 care through our residency program. Our pharmacy residents and some of our overnight pharmacists would respond to emergency uh, types of care. And we ended up adding the PE response team as part of that. And one of the key things I think a pharmacist provides on that, and I've been to many of these at UK now, is really getting appropriate anticoagulation on board safely and at an appropriate dose in a timely manner, because that is where some of the evidence I think is strong in regard to treatment of acute PE, in addition to working through contraindications for more advanced therapies like uh, thrombolytics. And it really, I think, uh, was a great opportunity for pharmacists to sort of represent what they bring to the table very similar to our uh, stroke response team, actually. There's really a lot of overlap. And so I think uh, this continues even as we were talking a little bit about the outpatient care. There's a lot of outpatient um, models out there now for follow-up for PE patients. And I think pharmacists uh, will have the opportunity in addition to that acute care, but optimizing duration and assessing, we talked about persistent risk factors to an extent, what patients should require extended antithrombotic therapy in the setting of PE. So, and this is an area I think is continuing to evolve. So for our pharmacist colleagues out there, um, I think there's a great opportunity to get involved with this organization if you have an interest in this area or a need at your health system. The PERT Consortium The members are now well over 80, approaching 100 hospitals throughout the United States. It includes academic hospitals and community hospitals. So I think there's a great opportunity, as many of us know, as pharmacists, many times we have these opportunities regardless in community academic, because something like VTE and PE, it transcends all of our levels of care. Yeah, and uh, George, I know they have a wonderful database that they have, you know, they have a wonderful database that they continue to add to that becomes an opportunity for greater learning and, uh, and really, I think, standardizing the way we, we manage these patients. So, you know, tremendous work on, on your end. And I think I can never, you know, dismiss, you know, when you go to these meetings, I know there's interventionalists, there's cardiovascular experts. There's hematologists, there's pulmonologists, there's a seat for us as pharmacists at the table in all of these organizations to add some some value. So I think that's important. 
Uh, George, thanks for joining me today. Let me wrap up, you know, with some takeaway messages uh, for our pharmacy listeners here. So I, I think what I heard is, is, you know, we've got a history of trying to prevent DVT and, v, uh, and pulmonary embolism in the hospital. So we have a history of trying to prevent DVT and pulmonary embolism in the hospital. And we have a history of knowing what works. And what I'm hearing is, is we need to take that knowledge and combine it with the knowledge that's emerging for disease states like COVID-19 and optimize uh, and make the best selections of VT prevention strategies for our patients. So the pharmacists have an obligation here to try to keep up with the literature that's emerging. They have an obligation to provide surveillance as they see these patients come across in medical wards and in our intensive care units and recognize when somebody may need VT prophylaxis, not only in the hospital, but recognizing there may be an opportunity to extend that prophylaxis as they leave the hospital to some sort of destination, whether it be a skilled nursing facility, rehabilitation hospital, or even home. So George, thank you for today. And to our audience, thank you for joining us at this ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.